Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about Scott Morrison quitting politics, sexual violence reform, the Oscars snub, stage three tax cuts, Taylor Swift explicit deep fakes go viral and more. But first we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the actual news, Hannah, what is your personal headline of the week? Everyone already knows it because it's been all over my Instagram (laughs) the whole week. It's been absolutely wild. I actually got invited to go on the Triple J hookup to talk about it. Really? Yeah, because they were the Triple J hookup hosts were like, we were watching your stories all about your group date. I've got to explain it, but um, would you come on soon and go on a couple weeks and talk about it, I believe. But basically, I moved in with two of my best friends and we're all single and I basically basically pitched what if we each had a first date come to the house and do like a first date group dinner and so on Friday night we executed the plan only eight days after I'd initially pitched it we managed to each lock in a first date have them over to the house on Friday night have a full date night it went extremely well everyone had a great time and I was just so excited that my project management skills because I was like I'm in charge of this group date and I'm going to execute it and it was executed to perfection everyone did so well the content was so funny thank you these guys were such good sports They were good sports. And obviously we're really careful about content and consent and all those things because obviously the morals and ethics of it come way before anything else. Um, But they were so excited by the whole thing. And like each of us had met the guy we went on a date with in a different way. So Mm. I set up one of my friends with the guy and then one of my friends met on a dating app. And then I actually went to my followers and was like, who wants to be the date? (laughs) So it was three very different situations, but it was like so much fun. And who cares what happens from here? There's like obviously so much complexity where people are now like really invested, but I want to make clear to people like it was fun. fun stay playful stay play let's stay playful together like it's it's just a night it's great um but let's just chill out now and let people have their private time as well so yeah I loved it what's yours thank you thank you we had a lot of commentary in the oh. car this morning yeah I know I know actually one of the funniest things I did this last week mm. was actually last night and I was when we we're talking about your like group date this yeah. is what made me think of it so one of my roommates is on hinge and it's so fun when she just gives you the phone Mm -hmm. and lets you pick for her. I think we might be sabotaging, but it's so funny. It's not sabotaging. You have Riz, Sarah. I think, honestly, I think I do. But also it's dire out there. Oh, you don't have to tell me twice. (laughs) (laughs) I actually feel like I'm being so much harsher because I'm like, not good enough for her. Not good enough for her. That's nice. And also it's like with the group chat, all my coupled friends are like, can we just come? I'm like, no, that's the point. This is the one thing we get is the one fun thing, you know? (laughs) Like this is the only fun thing about being single. Like let's have our fun. Uh, Okay, let's get into it. After 16 years in Parliament, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced he will quit politics at the end of February. That's right. I'm doing a really newsy story. <laughs> Sarah's on the news. Sarah Sarah has a journalism degree. All my friends are always like, I love it when Sarah does the news. I'm like, Sarah's probably better at the news than me. So, <laughs> um, so ScoMo served as the 30th Prime Minister of Australia between 2018 and 2022. And then last Tuesday, he posted on his 
Instagram, just letting you know, especially everyone locally, that after more than 16 years as a member for Cook, I have decided to leave Parliament at the end of February to take on new challenges in the global corporate sector and spend more time with my family. Goes on with thank yous and then he ends with, I now look forward to enjoying local life here in the Shire and my church community at Horizon with my family and friends as always. Hashtag up up Cronulla. The Engadine McDonald's would argue with that one. (laughs) <laughs> when I was actually researching like ScoMo moments, Engadine Maccas came up so much. It's actually crazy. I'm sure we'll get into it later. I actually left it out, but... Because, oh, thank God I dropped it then. I know. If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, I fully encourage you to go Reddit. Can I say it? Yeah. Sorry. So allegedly he shat himself in the bathroom of Engadine McDonald's after the Cronulla Grand Final. <laughs> And it's like this urban legend. Yeah. He's had to go on so many times and deny that yeah. that's happened. He's like, that is one of the most out of hand yeah. And I'm like, why does it have so much traction then? Can I say on Sunday, I, I went and had a night on the coast on Saturday night with two of my friends and I was driving back and I've never really driven through Canola before, but when I was on the way back, I drove past the Engadine McDonald's <laughs> and I almost pulled over. I was like, that's it. Let's that's go to the bathroom that's and take a, a selfie. That would be iconic. It's like from over like decades ago, that yeah. story as well. And it just lives it's on. It's 97 or 98. I'm pretty sure it's 99. Yeah. The year of our birth. (laughs) (laughs) So many good things happened that year. (laughs) (laughs) Later in an interview with Sky News says, I'm sure there are things that people will need to forgive me and I'll forgive them. You just don't carry these things with you. You look forward. And I actually want to touch on that. Uh, For those who need a bit of background and a refresher on ScoMo and what he actually did during his time in politics and as prime minister, because he was there through some pretty major events like COVID, bushfires. That was all him. Um, So I'm going to start with something that he actually, when he did his formal resignation letter, one of the things he listed as his achievements was stopping the boats. And that that slogan, Stop the Boats, is literally melted into my brain. It's actually a Tony Abbott slogan. It is a Tony Abbott, but ScoMo was the one behind it, working for Tony yes. Abbott, which I don't know if a lot of people make that connection. No. He was shadow cabinet immigration. Yeah, so the Stop the Boats campaign was run after Tony Abbott challenged Malcolm Turnbull as opposition leader and invited Scott Morrison into a shadow cabinet as immigration and citizenship yep, spokesman. Yep. Stop the Boats was pretty controversial. And especially in hindsight now, looking back on that, interesting that he listed that as the first achievement. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. Also, just given the state of our offshore detention centres. His legacy is still something that is quite negative, which is a sort of, and we'll go through it more. I think his legacy is in his, it's just very much to do with defence. And that's his, that's his sticking point. But... Another thing that you'll also remember ScoMo for was a very infamous holiday to Hawaii he went on with his wife and daughters while parts of Australia were battered with bushfires in the 2019 to 2020 summer. A PR disaster. That's why you might see the joke Scotty from marketing because it's always just like he's his worst PR marketing agent ever. Like some of the stuff he's said. When that happened and he was copping a lot of grief for being on a holiday when the country was in such a crisis, Mm. was he then declared, I don't hold a hose, mate. And you'll also remember the forced handshake. So he would go into these communities when he did come back and one of the most infamous videos of him is going into a small community that was bushfire affected and going up to people who were clearly frustrated that he was even there and wasn't really doing anything and actually forcing a woman to shake his hand when she refused. And this is the thing is that it's just like the incapacity to kind of realise and have that resilience and respect 
response when you've done something wrong. There was mm. never an acknowledgement. There was never an apology. Yeah. And that seems to be a very clear pattern with ScoMo. Yeah. Um, another thing, obviously, he was in charge during the pandemic. He introduced JobKeeper and JobSeeker, which I will say, like, more than one million businesses were supported and more than four million Australians had their jobs saved with that JobKeeper, JobSeeker. That was really impressive. However, the vaccine rollout, hot mess. And the thing is, is that I understand that you want to acknowledge and we want to give some points, but I just think with the pandemic, yes, job seeker, job keeper, crucial, but I don't know what leader would not have done those things. Well, I think it was just more in comparison to the rest of the world. Totally. Mm. But also I would actually lean into the fact that the states were the biggest winners in terms of the mm. premiers actually put in the hardest yards during the coronavirus pandemic oh yeah yeah Yeah, but yeah yeah, the vaccine rollout it's actually so interesting the way that we kind of like really numb ourselves to what happened three years ago you know like it's really hard like I feel very blanked in my memory as to what those years involved but so traumatizing so recent yeah and yet somehow feels very distant from our minds as well and still like yeah and this need to feel like we need a recap yeah absolutely he was also the key architect to the AUKUS yeah, that's how you say it. But I love because I was even scared of the approach. I was like, AUKUS. <laughs> Trilateral Defence Pact with the US and the UK, which many would say is his greatest legacy. He joined Boris Johnson, the UK's ex-Prime Minister, and Joe Biden to announce AUKUS, which was a new security partnership between Australia, the UK, and US. It was the first major initiative planned to deliver nuclear-powered submarines to Australia with the overall aim to sustain peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific region. Pretty much it allowed Australia to share nuclear resources with them and strengthen our defence. Yes, and it was also highly controversial because we're realistically pitching multi-billion dollar spends for 30 years in the future for a prospective maybe thing we'll need defensively. Yeah. I think for the vast majority of people, especially coming out like during the COVID pandemic and coming out of that, it was really frustrating to see someone be so willing to invest so much into something that was not even going to affect the Australian public. As much as it's probably his lasting legacy, it is so... At the time. Broadly disliked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was also a founding member of the Quad Leaders Summit. So for the US, India and Japan and Australia formed this summit as a diplomatic partnership of the Indo-Pacific for, again, for security, climate change, humanitarian assistance. I guess it was just more international bonds and defence, again, was the sticking point for him. Another thing that I'm sure a lot of us remember was, as also just a burned in our brain scomo memory was Grace Tame and his comments towards her. Like when Grace Tame won the Australian of the Year Award back in 2021, she gave this really powerful speech about grooming, about sexual assault, about her own personal experiences. And then later after that, she gave an interview with the Tudor Advocate and she told them what our Prime Minister, our Prime Minister Mm. said to her, Following her speech, she said, and quote, do you know what he said to me right after I finished that speech and we were in front of a wall of media? I shit you not, he leaned over and right in my ear he goes, well, gee, I bet that felt good to get out. It's actually disturbing. I know. It's and actually it's very, disturbing. It's very reminiscent as well of following Brittany Higgins. He publicly admitted that the reason he decided to finally take action on it was because his wife, Jenny, made him think about, what if it was my daughter's? And I just remember that left such a bitter taste in so many people's mouths during that time as well. Like, it was like, why does it take that? But also, there's another key moment that comes to mind with that, which was... 
So I think that Australia really had our Me Too moment at the beginning of 2021 where Grace Tame was named Australian of the Year. Brittany Higgins came forward and alleged that she'd been raped inside Parliament House and Christian Porter was accused of a historic allegation of rape and he was our Attorney General at the time. Mm, mm. These three key elements really infuriated Australian women around the country and it was very much an enough is enough moment. And yeah. there was the March for Justice mm. around the country in I believe it was March of 2021 and he did not come out and meet women where they were at on the step in front of Parliament House. He actually gave a speech in Parliament and said that women were lucky not to have been met with bullets. Yes, I do remember that. That was like one of the the moments where like no, he already was so ha, had such a lack of approval around the nation. But the choice of words and the choice of language is not because he's a silly duffer. It's not. It's purposeful and it's an agenda and it's a an inability to empathise and to understand people outside of his own experience, which happened mm. time after time. Yeah. Again, on another huge thing, which is kind of happened in retrospect, is the robo-debt. Yeah. The Royal Commission had a very scathing report into the former coalition government's automated debt collecting system. We have explained robo-debt on the yes. podcast before. Highly recommend. Hannah does a great job because it's so confusing. It is. Um, but you did a really good job of explaining it. But pretty much Scott Morrison was accused of failing to meet his responsibility as the social services minister. I mean, he still rejects the findings, completely denies, but robo-debt is a huge thing in our Australian political history. Just to, to put it in one sentence, it's really that our most vulnerable were targeted and asked to prove they didn't owe the government money. Mm. That's really what happened. And it was a get overriding the presumption of innocence and it was really unlawful. Mm. And Morrison oversaw part of that and he refuses to acknowledge or even apologise. What What is ScoMo doing now? Like, what what's the next step? Well, firstly, he will release a book, Plans for Your Good, a Prime Minister's Testimony of God's Faithfulness in May, with a foreword by the former US Vice President Mike Pence. Oh my God, I will not be picking that up at Big W. But more importantly, he has a new job. He has a few new jobs, but he's taking on a new role as the non-executive vice chairman with an international consulting firm best known for its work in the defense sector. Shocking. The firm American Global Strategies was founded by Robert O'Brien, who was also an advisor to Trump for national security during 2019 and 2021. Is that not build a wall then? That's Build-A-Wall. That's Trump's Build-A-Wall campaign. Yep. Thank you, Robert, for that. His job will be to advise clients on matters in the Indo-Pacific region and consult between companies and governments. He will also be working alongside Mike Pompeo, which is a former Trump Secretary of State at a US-Australian-founded venture capital firm. My thoughts on this is how – maybe this is silly. I want your take on this. But, like, his new job is essentially a lobbying job. Yep. How is that allowed? Like PM's going straight from one of the top jobs in a country to then advising for a largely US company for another country specialising in the defence industry. Here's the thing is that one of the points I constantly come back to with this is that it's easier to make the jokes about Scott Morrison, right? It's easy for us to sit here and be like, I can go, haha, and like point to all of the very easy, I don't hold, hold a hose, all these funny moments where he tackled that kid before the election. Like you see the imagery in your mind. It's very clear. I think what's more concerning is that this person who had some serious political failures has now just gone, I'm done now, and walked himself straight into probably a higher paying job where he gets to have all this influence and all this privacy and doesn't really face the consequences for anything he's done. 
My question is more just like how are you able to walk into those top jobs knowing as much as you know from being a prime minister? Queen. You're asking the right questions, but unfortunately, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like this is exactly the point is that politicians who are sort of excommunicated from politics to use his own language, who have to leave because they're so disliked or they've done bad things or they've just got no, their career's going nowhere, step themselves into high-paying influential roles in other sectors and they are welcomed with open arms. It's also kind of, I guess, to be expected. Like, where do you go after being Prime Minister? Yeah. What That is probably the next logical step. But it does seem like there should be more parameters around that as well. Yeah. One of the comments I read on Instagram when the news broke on this, which I thought was funny, was... So will he not be in charge of marketing? (laughs) Just a content warning before the next story. It discusses in-depth sexual violence. New research shows that nearly 65,000 rape victims in the United States could not access an abortion in their state. While here in Australia, an inquiry into legal responses to sexual violence has begun to examine how the justice system responds to cases. Now, I wanted to cover both of these stories because they're both so important and I just thought because they're to do with the same sort of space, I think we can link them together, both the US and what's happening here in Australia. Yeah. So many of us will be aware that the constitutional right to an abortion that had stood for 50 years in the United States under the Rowan Wade case was overturned by the US Supreme Court in 2022. And when that law change occurred, just from a legal perspective, it didn't criminalise abortion, but what it did was hand back the power to the states and say, you can legislate whatever you want in your individual territories, basically. So they then had the power to set out the parameters around who could access reproductive health care. Yes. And as you can imagine, in the deep states, that became impossible. Exactly. And now 14 states have banned abortion and made it a criminal offence to undergo or perform an abortion. So not only does the person who's pregnant face the consequences, but any medical professional who undertakes or performs one will also face prosecution. And that's that's just it. That is such a problem because the doctors are now too afraid Yeah. Even when there is medical reason, even cases, as we spoke about earlier last year, even cases that do have strong medical reasons are being told it's not a strong enough medical reason. Look at you. You're perfect. You're literally taking the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was about (laughs) to say. No, it's good. It's great. We're on the same page because... There's states that have total abortion bans, but then there's medical circumstances under which there can be exceptions. But we're seeing all these legal battles where after these abortions have been performed, they're still saying it wasn't, you know, medically enough reason. And what Mm. do you, like, there's all these questions around, like, what danger does it have to pose to the pregnant person's life before it's allowed? So it's all this, like, how is it really pro-life sort of question, right? Now... Of the 14 states that have total bans in place, five allow abortions for pregnancies resulting from rape, but they must be reported to police. But we know from national research in the US from 2022 that only 21% of victims do report. So there's also this additional barrier to accessing healthcare because what they're trying to prevent clearly is people just like allegedly claiming that that's what's happened in order to access an abortion, Mm. which is just ridiculous. People should be able to choose what happens to their body. Now... This peer-reviewed study has emerged in the last week or two, which has basically looked at since Roe versus Wade was overturned, there had been almost 65,000 pregnancies from rape in the states that had legislated total bans. Also, of those pregnancies, 58,979 occurred in the states with no exception for rape. So of the 14, right. nine, that's how many had occurred. Yeah. 
Basically, the researchers used a range of data sources to essentially construct like a reliable estimate of the number of pregnancies that have occurred in the country and then limited that to the states that these bans are in place and then basically made this total. So it's, it's, a, it's a reliable estimate. But also keep in mind, I know people will be freaking out at the number 65,000, but that's not total number of sexual assaults or rapes that have occurred in the states. That's that have resulted in pregnancy, yeah. the number was over 500,000. Yeah. When we look at that, and I was reading through some of the comments on a lot of the social media posts around this, and so many people were saying, like, you know, prevent sexual violence, don't allow abortion. And there was these really cynical and just, like, completely invalid arguments around, like, the access to abortion not being the problem. And it's really interesting the way in which people are so to kind of understand the trauma that that would enforce on a victim survivor of rape. Also that comment like, well, we should just, you know, put the education in so that people don't sexually assault. It's like, yep. And until you do that. Yeah. But also education and legislation doesn't mean that this still won't happen. Like this will always occur. Uh, Yeah. I believe that we can mitigate it by 90%. Yeah. But you cannot just fix one part. It is the entirety of that process and that pipeline that needs to be adjusted and and, and fundamentally reconstructed. Mm. Now, the second part of this story that I want to discuss, which is I would hope everyone thinks it's a more positive note to end on, in Australia, a year-long inquiry into legal responses to sexual violence began last week. And the government has basically announced last week the parameters for the inquiry that could potentially completely overhaul the judicial structure and responses to sexually violent crimes. This will be undertaken by the Australian Law Reform Commission. And it kind of will look at how the justice system handles sexual violence, which was a Labor promise before the election. Now, the ALRC, the Australian Law Reform Commission, is an independent body which undertakes research and provides recommendations for reform on legal topics that have been set by the Attorney General. So they don't automatically become law, whatever they recommend, but 85% of the reports they have to date have been either substantially or partially implemented. Mm. So these changes are likely to be made. And if Labor has the intention as a government to make these changes, I believe they will occur. But then the other thing to note is if the results of the inquiry come in in a year, we're looking close to the election. Mm. So that's also a determining factor whether they're implemented, which is kind of dangerous. Yeah. But I think it's just important to understand this isn't like a watchdog or a complaints body. It's an independent of government body that reviews and tries to update our legal system in line with changing community values and what we're demanding. Now, last year, data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics found that one in five women have experienced sexual violence. So that's over two million women around the country have experienced sexual violence in their life. I would suggest those numbers are much higher. I would suggest that a lack of education around what sexual violence is means many women don't know or cannot identify that what has happened to them is sexual violence. Well, that's what was so important about Chanel Contos's work Absolutely. and the fact that when those conversations first started happening, which was so recent yes. and shocking for us at yeah. our age, but even for our mothers and generational, like people looking back and being like, oh, I guess that did count. And yeah. I just, I didn't, I didn't even know. And I think it's one of those things where even, I'm not sure if you experienced this, but I know for me personally, like as an educated person that is works in this space, like we're in this feminist, like very left-wing space where we're talking about all these things. We know the definitions. I know how to identify it. But when it happens to me, I don't recognize it. Mm. It's very much that thing where like you can give advice, but you can't take your own advice. But it's in this like really personal way where often you can recognize what's happened to a friend of yours and they tell you, but when it happens to you, you kind of ignore it or push it away because that's kind of sometimes easier. Because it's unlearning so much. And I think we're not going to really see the difference 
for a few generations to come. Absolutely. To but I think that like with this inquiry, what's really important about it is that it was born out of a roundtable discussion that happened last year between government ministers, victim survivors and advocacy groups. And they basically set out the terms of reference, which is kind of like the scope or the parameters and limitations and purpose of this inquiry and what it's going to look at. And the inquiry will look at the frameworks of evidence, of court procedures, jury directions. It'll talk about laws about consent, policies, training for judges, police and legal practitioners. It will specifically also examine how minority groups interact with the justice system after reporting these offences and and they've determined who will sort of oversee this inquiry. And I think that it's incredibly important because as it stands now, the justice system and the way that they approach complainants who are victim survivors, they really treat them like witnesses. They are witnesses. They are not the person going up against a perpetrator. When someone chooses to prosecute and pursue criminal charges in these cases, often their experience is just one of re-traumatisation where they are kind of engaging in another level of abuse. Because if you think about it, often what underpins these crimes is control and trauma and really invalidating their experience. That's kind of what underpins sexual violence as a, as a concept. And for someone to be forced to sit in the stand and to repeat over and over again what happened to them and to face the person that they are alleging committed those acts against them and to have to be deemed credible or believable. To run the risk of not being yeah. deemed any of those things. Yeah, and that is the entire purpose of that process is for a defence attorney is to how to unravel that person. And that's exactly a pattern of abuse. So how do we change this to ensure that people feel supported because otherwise they're never going to prosecute or pursue justice? But also it's about having a conversation about what complainants want when they approach the legal system. They might not necessarily want the perpetrator to undergo you know, a prison sentence. They might want them to not do it again. Mm. That's often the most common rhetoric is, I didn't want to engage in that process because I knew it would be years long and traumatising. I wanted them to recognise what they'd done and not do it to someone else. Yeah. And so this is something where victim survivors have been asked to engage and to speak their truth and tell their story about what they want to change. And I think this is a politically significant moment in Australian history that could be the before and after moment for our justice system. So I'm hopeful. The Barbie movie was a culturally profound, critically acclaimed feminist film with a largely female cast and director grossing billions of dollars at the box office. So naturally, the Oscar nomination goes to Ken. Wow, wow. <laughs> the Oscar nominations have been published and as expected, Oppenheimer is actually the front runner with 13 nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director for Christopher Nolan. Barbie, another clear favourite from the past year, also a front rider, was also nominated a bunch of times. However, since last week's announcement, the only thing that anyone can talk about is how Barbie's director and co-writer Greta Gerwig has been left absent from the Best Director category, while the movie's star and producer Margot Robbie was left out of Best Actress. Uh-huh. In saying that, Greta is nominated for Best Screenplay and Margot shares the Best Picture nomination. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Ryan Gosling was acknowledged in the Best Supporting Actor category for Barbie. However, well-deserved. And I have to say, I think it is well-deserved. I he think he's should, amazing in that film. He should be nominated. Ryan Gosling killed it in that role. Yep. The nod to Ken and not Barbie, however, felt ironic. Yes, of course. And 
as being repeatedly pointed out since, a film that touches on the infiltration of the patriarchy felt a little on the nose. And of course, to give credit to the beyond measurable cultural impact that was created by both Greta and Margot, of course, people felt that Greta should have been in the best director category. Like, at a minimum, she should have been in the best director category. You know, Barbie was the highest grossing film of 2023 and the 14th highest of all time. It was literally year of the Barbie. Yep. Ryan Gosling the Ken that he is, God bless him, released his own statement the, the day the nominations came out. I actually want to read it because I think it was really well yes. explained. I am extremely honoured to be nominated by my colleagues alongside such remarkable artists in a year of so many great films. And I never thought I'd be saying this, but I'm also incredibly honoured and proud to be portraying a plastic doll named Ken. But there is no Ken without Barbie and there is no Barbie without Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie, the two people most responsible for this history-making, globally celebrated film. No recognition would be possible for anyone on the film without their talent, grit and genius." To say that I'm disappointed that they are not nominated in their respective categories would be an understatement. Against all odds, with nothing but a couple of soulless, scantily clad and thankfully crotchless dolls, they made us laugh, they broke our hearts and they pushed the culture and they made history. Their work should be recognised alongside with the other very deserving nominees. Having saying that, I'm also happy for America Ferreira and the other incredible artists who contributed their talents to making this film such a groundbreaking film. And really he, well he had that like out within hours of the nomination as well. And America Ferreira, who was also nominated for Barbie for Best Supporting Actress, also commented, Greta has done just about everything that a director could do to deserve it, creating this world, taking something that didn't have inherent value to most people and making it a global phenomenon. It feels disappointing not to see her on that list. I also saw Eva Mendes, who's Ryan Gosling's partner, also the mother of his children, and she posted, so proud of my man, so much hate when he took on this role, so many people trying to shame him for doing it. Despite all the hashtag NotMyKen ridicule and the articles written about him, he created a completely original, hilarious, heartbreaking and now iconic character and took it all the way to the Oscars. So beyond proud to be this Ken's Barbie. Really nice. Credit to him on that. People forget that when the cast was first announced for Barbie, way before the film, everyone was like, oh my God, he's too old. The hair looks ridiculous. People were mad I that was it was like Ryan Gosling. I yeah, I wasn't that. convinced yeah. on him saying all of this. Like, yes, Yes, I think Greta Gerwig should have got a nomination. Yes, I think Margot Robbie should have got a nomination. But I think it's also important to understand how the nomination process actually works. You know, there's reason enough to believe that it probably wasn't an intentional snub. Okay. And I thought Vanity Fair explained this pretty well. They said, we call it a snub when a favourite is left out, but the nomination process is really more like a game of musical chairs with with more worthy honorees than there are slots. Academy voters like to mix things up and spread around their support, motivated by a sense of fairness and a desire to share or use their ballot to do something meaningful. And that doesn't change in phase two when voters get the chance to see what's already on the ballot, what might be missing and put their support behind something that was snubbed on nominations morning. Also, they get to vote for something outside of the nominations. Well, I think the point is like when the people that pick the nominees they don't know what everyone else is going to be doing so they try and really intentionally use their vote or pick films that they think might not otherwise be the front runner and sometimes what that creates is like Mm. obvious ones then sort of get missed out which is it's an important thing that to note that it is kind of a blind ballot. Yes. But the other thing that I found really interesting about all this, and that was sort of was touching on at the end of that quote, and Times is writing about it, Vanity Fair is writing about it, Hollywood Reporter. Everyone's wondering right now if this immense amount of backlash 
from the fans and from other key industry figures about Barbie's snub will cause Barbie to pull an Argo. And win everything. No. So pulling an Argo is... I'm about to learn. (laughs) I love your enthusiasm. (laughs) Now, if you've seen that floating around and you're confused, what it's referring to is actually Ben Affleck's directorial snub for Argo back in the 2013 Oscar nominations. So Argo was a film that Ben Affleck directed. Ben Affleck's directing absence was viewed as a sign that that Argo lacked support in the industry. But in the days and weeks to follow after the nominations, absolute outrage and the snub turned into this sort of underdog enthusiasm that then catapulted Argo to secure Best Picture. Up against some pretty big dogs. Yeah. So there was so much noise about the snub for Ben Affleck and for Argo that by the time the Oscars arrived, it was then a front runner yeah. to win Best Picture to redeem the snub, if yeah. that makes sense. It does. So now you can see all these Reddit threads on Twitter and people are wondering if Barbie can also now pull an Argo and that this snub might somewhat work in the favour to take out Best Picture. And... I mean, who knows? We'll have to wait until March 10th. We'll have to wait for the Oscars to see. Yeah. But I just think that's really... Interesting. What's also hard that it makes me think of in that way is I think it will in Best Picture now. I do think it will pull an Argo now that I know Mm, what that means. But I also think that unfortunately Ryan will now lose even though I want him to win. Uh, I I actually think he should win. It's more that I don't like the inequality there. But also like this, this, I think it's hard because I think that I even on Cheek like posted about this and it went viral. Like it was something like 35,000 likes and 20,000 shares or something. It was going crazy. But also it kind of lacks the recognition for America Ferrera being nominated for Best Supporting Actress. But also other things like Lily Gladstone was the first Native American woman mm-hmm. to be nominated for Best Actress. Like yeah. there are so many things that were great about it. I, I think that's a really good point, especially in the Best Actress category. Yes, I think Margot was so deserving of a nomination, but that doesn't take away from the other amazing women in that category. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the... The, the key criticisms is like, well, it's not like Ryan himself beat out Margot and Greta in that category. It's like, no, no, that's not the point, though. The point, unfortunately, is that it's so classic and speaks exactly to the nature of the film, what it was trying to communicate to the world. Yeah, and that's just a, there's just a clear irony in yes. it. But I mean, the other nominations for Best Picture are very worthy. Yeah. Like they, they're going to be up against some really stiff competition. Obviously Oppenheimer, The Anatomy of a Fall, American Fiction, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, yep. Maestro, Past Lives, Poor Things. I haven't seen Poor Things Neither yet, but apparently it's incredible. And The Zone of Interest. Like all deserving. Also, people will say it's a PR stunt and that they're just trying to get people to watch the Oscars. I did see that. Mm. There's so many theories yeah. out there right now, similar to the Argo theory. But now but... I will watch it, won't I? Yeah. So, unfortunately, that's that's done well. <laughs> now for a topic that only we could slay in a fun way. Here's everything you need to know about changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts. <laughs> so... Last week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts. As I just said, the changes basically mean that working-class Australians get a bigger tax break and those earning more see their promised cuts halved. So strap in because this is the simplest and most straightforward explanation you're going to get because I know how boring this is because I had to really study up yesterday. I know. You were like, I don't know if I can speak. This isn't my forte. And then you walked in and you're like, I get it. Yeah. I, it was actually <laughs> I can speak it was such a powerful moment. I walked into the studio and I was like, yesterday I was like ready to sort of, you know, stick a rusty fork in my eye. And then today I walked in and I was like, I'm excited about this because I understand it and I actually have things to say as per <laughs> usual. Well, okay. Let's start with what are stage three tax cuts and what has changed from the original scheme? So 
The Morrison government's stage three tax cuts passed parliament in 2019. They were originally announced in 2018, I believe. And Labor committed to keeping them in the last election. It was one of their key election promises was trying to get the votes of the wealthy, basically, yeah. by saying, we're not going to take your shit. Mm. Just vote for us. That was kind of it. And stage one and stage two of the tax cuts have already taken effect and they benefit low and middle income earners more. Now, under the coalition's original plan, stage three would have gotten rid of the 37% tax rate and instead put in place a 30% tax rate for anyone earning between 45 grand and 200 grand. So if you earned less than 45, you wouldn't have seen anything, basically. But now, last week, Albo has basically come out and announced that the federal cabinet will make a change to how the tax cuts are distributed with households on middle incomes actually now benefiting the most when we look at the modelling that's sort of been done from the Australian National University as to these changes. Mm. So under Labor's alterations, that 37% rate for people earning over 135 grand will stay and the top tax rate of 45% will kick in at 190 grand rather than 180. So the people earning more than $135,000 will not be have their tax rate reduced from 37% to 30%. Right. It's just and so that that's the key change but the people in the other bracket that's remaining the lower income earners will have that change down to 30%. The second tax rate will be reduced from 32.5% to 30% for people earning up to 135 grand. Now, here's where it gets even better, I think. The lowest rate of income tax will be reduced from 19% to 16%. So workers who are paid more than 45 grand will only be paying 16 cents on the dollar instead of 19 cents on the dollar. So they get a tax reduction too. Now, there's also another fun surprise, and that's that Labor have lifted the Medicare levy threshold so many low-income earners paying it now won't have to in the future. Here are a few examples. I'll just like I'll just set out a few yeah. salaries. Keep talking us through. I'm, just, I'm, I'm following. The numbers. Are, I'm not a woman in STEM. Okay, this <laughs> has actually been hard work for my brain. So, a person on a wage of seventy three grand will get a tax cut of fifteen hundred bucks a year. Mm-hmm. Someone earning fifty grand will end up with nine hundred twenty nine dollars a year, and someone on a hundred grand will retain an extra twenty one hundred. At the upper end, the stage three tax cuts for someone earning two hundred thousand dollars. Their original tax cut under the coalition would have been nine thousand dollars. Yeah. Now it's four and a half. So these people that are like, they're taking our tax cut. It's like you are still getting a four and a half thousand dollar tax cut. You're not getting a nine thousand dollar tax cut. Yeah. You are the people that probably should be paying more tax because you are earning a shitload, right? I will say that. Okay, so Labor obviously this is a massive change from them, but they've been sitting on this for a while. Mm-hmm. Why why now yeah. make the announcement? I think, like, Labor have clearly been dealing with a lot of backlash from their voter base, which is working-class people, mm. who have been saying, like, why are you upholding this promise? Like, it's kind of been a debate of, like, whether they should keep their word or whether they should actually relieve pressure on people who have been affected by the cost of living crisis. So it's like, what's more important, your word or helping people, mm. essentially? Which is a it's a tough political position, I will say. Now... The announcement comes like as things are about to take effect. So this has been a kind of an ongoing debate for more than 12 months. As expected, Peter Dutton, the opposition leader's response is he's kind of treating this as like an offence worthy of the electric chair. I would just, as expected, right? He is saying the Prime Minister should call an election to put these changes to the Australian people. He is saying that it's a broken promise and that we can't ever trust the government again and it is kind of just like not standing by its word and that they should be held accountable for that. But let's also think about how the world has changed since these tax cuts were announced. You know, Morrison government decided this 
And this is before a pandemic. This is before the cost of living has just become completely out of control. And this is a classic coalition promise of incentivizing high income earning in Australia. So that's really always the position is like by giving tax breaks to the wealthy, we're incentivizing Australians to work harder and earn more. But we know in this cost of living crisis that your salary is not reflective of your productivity or how hard you work. And I feel like that's a line that's always been peddled for me by my parents who are, for the most of my life, were liberal voters, Mm. was that it was like they need to incentivize people to, to work harder. And it's like we just know that a lot of these high income earners aren't getting to those positions because they work harder than anyone else. It's the result of many factors, including where you live, your education, what you have access to, your yeah. childhood. Like so many things affect how much you can earn in your earning capacity over a lifetime. You know, Deputy Leader Susan Lay also went on radio and basically said that like a tax cut for one Australian should not come at the expense of another. But I think when we look at these sort of distinctions, it's like, for the wealthy, their tax cut is ginormous and it's just going to less ginormous slightly. Like mm. It is not that they are not getting one. It is that they're getting a less significant one. And I think that that is not something to start a class war over because I think actually what we're trying to do is limit the class war and limit the division by giving everyone a tax cut. Every, every In a cost of living crisis. Every single Australian will have a tax cut under this change. And that is huge. So as much as I've been really quite critical of Labor at the moment over like what their decisions have been in a, in a range of capacities, they have taken a really regressive policy and made it progressive and made it applicable to everyone to get something. And that is so important. And this will actually see that redistributed through the labour market to minority groups, to young people who are earning less, who need to pay for rent and who need to save for mortgages, going to be helpful for minority groups and women and people with childcare responsibilities and the people in industries that pay less. And so this is a really important change, I think, and it's one of the things I will defend labour over, which I usually wouldn't do. If anyone can cause the US government to suddenly take deep fake porn seriously, it's Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. So this is crazy that's happened this week. It's just terrifying, to be honest. But pretty much the rise of pornographic deep fake images created by AI has prompted calls for better legislation as fake explicit images of Taylor Swift went viral Mm. in this past week. So deep fakes, if you don't know, it's AI to make a video of someone by manipulating their face and body. So it looks, you can't, you can really hard tell the difference between deep fakes and a real photo. Absolutely. And a study actually back in 2023 found that there has been a 550% rise in the creation of these images since 2019, which is you know, obviously fueled by the rise of AI. But these non-consensual images of Taylor Swift began circulating very widely in the past week on Twitter, X, and spread then to Facebook and to other platforms. One of the images that was shared was viewed 47 million times before the account was suspended. That is wild. So it was, it was viewed 47 million times? Viewed 47 million times. That's insane. The numbers. downloads and shares would have been astronomical yeah. on that. And as you can imagine, pretty quickly, hashtag Taylor Swift started trending on X with a millions then trying to report the accounts and report the photos to get them taken down. So not only is this disturbing in and of itself... But also, the most widely spread images, the most popular images of these deep fakes were of either Taylor football related, I think it was like wearing a jersey or something like that, or her bloodied, depicting assault. You're kidding. I no. didn't know that. Yeah. 
awful. X has now suspended any searches for Taylor Swift on their platform. And in a statement to the BBC, X's head of business operations said it was a temporary action to prioritise safety. Now, when you search for Taylor Swift on Twitter, X, a message just comes up and says, something went wrong, try reloading. And this is not the first time that X has gotten itself in trouble for a lack of safety regulations. It has been copping major backlash for its safety measures since Elon Musk took over the platform in 2022. Elon pretty much fired 80% of the platform's safety engineers as part of a freedom of speech, not reach plan. So that plan was pretty much aimed to limit the controversial limit the like the reach and the spread of controversial posts but not delete them entirely that mm. was what he kind of stood for incitement of violence is a yay under Elon Musk basically well it's he's pretty much saying the algorithm's not going to spread it very far but we don't believe in deleting that is absolutely a fucked principle to run a massive social media outlet on. That is One of inc- the biggest social that media is, That is pure danger. Yeah. So the White House has actually responded and they have called these photos alarming. The White House press secretary said during a briefing, we know the lax enforcement disproportionately impacts women and they also impact girls, sadly, who are the overwhelming targets. She added that there should be legislation to tackle the misuse of AI technology on social media and that platforms should take their own steps to ban such content on their sites. Again, like, do better. Twitter was pretty much the thing. But in saying that, Democrat Congressman Joe Morrell also called the images abhorrent. And this is the same congressman who last year put forward, he was one of the representatives who put forward a bill that would criminalise the sharing or the threat to share AI-generated explicit content without consent. The bill is still under review, but this whole... thing has renewed those calls to speed that up. It's also like one of the most interesting parts, I think, of, of what you were just talking about was the fact that now when you search Taylor Swift, like the only mechanism to stop this was to ensure that like completely you could not access information about Taylor Swift on mm-hmm. that site. Mm-hmm. And what that means is not only is this woman in danger and is that sort of imagery being seen by the whole world basically if they wanted to, but that in order to prevent that harm, you have to actually kind of undermine the success of her career as well. And what I mean by that is like the safety measures are so poor there that now anyone who wants to positively access information by Taylor Swift cannot because there's now obstacles to just engaging with her as a fan and engaging with information about her that's positive because she actually has to be entirely wiped out in order to be protected because they have such little safety mechanisms in place. Yeah, no, I think this whole story is horrific and hopefully is a wake-up call to X and to Elon Musk's the US government practice. And also, you know, I, I think it's at least a positive note on this is that it has caught the attention of the government. Yes. Thank you for listening for another week. We are going to do our Q&A section. Uh, this week we got a message sent in from Joel that says, what does the ICJ ruling mean? So this is with the story we had last week. Yes, so please go and listen to last week's episode because I'm not going to run through again all of the context and all of the meaning behind the International Court of Justice, but many of you will have seen there has been a an interim order basically handed down last week in the South Africa versus Israel genocide case. Basically, what we're looking at right now isn't a final ruling, which could take years, but a rapid response to the mass killings that are occurring in Gaza as we speak. Which is great because that's what we were hoping came from this, Absolutely. is that they did something in 
the interim, yes, it's going to take years to figure out can we label this a genocide and what what the, what can we put in place, but enough evidence has been put forward that they can do something right now. And that's because it's a very precarious situation where there needs to be strong action taken fast. And, and basically, the court didn't offer a ceasefire, but they have made very clear through six provisions that they have told Israel to take measures to prevent and punish direct incitement of genocide in Gaza. So we're also seeing from this language, because there was a lack of the word ceasefire, we're seeing a lot of argument in the media from both pro-Palestine and pro-Israel groups kind of getting into, like, who was one here. Yeah. But I think quite clearly from the provisional measures, it is very obvious that the court is handing down this ruling with the view to stop Israel from continuing on the path they're on. Mm. And I think that anything that they fail to do will be taken by the court as evidence of what South Africa has prevented as well. Yeah. Has presented, sorry. Yeah. What have they put in? place. Yeah. So basically the six provisional measures, I know this is a bit of like legal language, but I'm going to try and run through as clearly as possible. So they've basically said to Israel that they need to act in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which basically says in particular, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, killing members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. So those are the sort of like um, sort of evidentiary pieces of what makes up an act or intent of genocide. Yeah. So they're saying they cannot be doing that and they've got to prevent that. Mm. They're also saying the state of Israel shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts described in that point. They say that the state of Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide, and that they should also ha- take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and, and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. They say that they should also take effective measures to prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence related to the allegations that South Africa put forward. And they also said that Israel shall submit a report to the court on all measures taken to give effect to the the order within one month from the date of the order. Wow. So... I think people are hearing in the media like they didn't use the word ceasefire, so they didn't do enough. But that's when you pretty listen strong to that, language. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. When when we talk about court process and legal language, I don't know that it's possible for them to use ceasefire because if they're not acknowledging what it is, mm. it's hard to demand that sort of language. But what they're saying is you have to report what you've done and you have to stop doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's that is, basically it's, it's, it's saying like do not harm. Yes. So and it's like that kind of defeats everything they're currently doing. Yeah. So. And so I think it's important for us in this conversation to strip back all the media shit. And all the Facebook, Instagram language and go, that's what they've stated. And that's pretty strong. Yeah. And if Israel doesn't comply with this, it's just more evidence that South Africa can win this case because they've been given this warning now very clearly. And they have to be able to prove not only that they're preventing it, but that they're punishing anyone who engages in it. Yeah. That's clear. Yeah. Thank you for listening again this week. If you had any questions, any feedback, anything you wanted to tell us, please send it to us on BigSmallTalk underscore pod. And we will see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.